You've been lied to, but you don't know how. You've searched, you've struggled, you've cried out. You want the truth, but where is it? You've wandered, you've fought, you've strived, and you have not been satisfied. What is truth? Where is truth? Who is truth? The kingdom of God, mind control, the last days, higher dimensions, unity, the power of faith, discovering the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. God has promised that he will hide us under his feathers and under his wings we will trust. His truth shall be our shield and our buckler. Discovering the Truth with Dan Devon is the premier program that is designed to center you on the kingdom of God, to equip you with faith in Jesus Christ, and to unveil the truth behind the lies. This program is designed to show you how to become more than you have ever imagined through the power of truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And now, prepare for your host, Dan Duvall. You're listening to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. This program is designed to center you on the kingdom of God, to equip you with faith in Jesus Christ, and to unveil the truth behind the lies. This program is a production of Bride Ministries, and you can find us at www.bridemovement.com and, of course, at www.thefireplacechurch.org. And on the fireplacechurch.org subject, we are planning to begin doing Sunday evening services. I'm saying it, and I'll say it again, and I'll say it again. Why? Because we want you to know that we care. And there's a whole lot of you out there that say, yeah, I'd love to come to your church, Daniel. I'd love to come to service and be blessed and all that. But Friday nights don't work for me. So, sorry. Well, now we no longer have to hear your apologies. Why? Because we are also making the Fireplace Church available Sunday evenings at 7 p.m. We're bringing in a whole other host of moderators in order to facilitate internet-based group discussions after the Sunday service as well. Therefore, you will be able to join us on Friday and enjoy the platform that allows for group discussion following every service with people from around the world. And you'll do the same thing on Sunday. You'll be able to choose which service works best for your complicated schedule, because I know you all have one. And so I just want to make the announcement that that is coming. When, Daniel, when do you plan to have this up and running? I have a date of September 4th written down as the day where this is going to become official. We might do a couple test runs before that, but realistically, September 4th, the Sunday evening service will go live public and that'll be for everyone. So, you know, I just want to say I'm really excited about the fact that we are able to grow in as many directions as we are. And, and frankly, I just got back from Australia. Folks, 
there were some really cool things that happened while I was in Australia, and I know you want to hear about it. I want to tell you, and this program today is actually going to be a little different than some of our other programs, which have this basic format. I give you some vision, and then we go to a quick break, and then I come back with my guest. Well, this week, we're going to have a bit of a complex program because I have a teaching on the mercy seat that I really want to just put out there, but... I also have a short interview with the uh, documentarian that produced the film Detestable. And we're going to be featuring that as well on this program. And of course, since everybody wants to know what happened in Australia, we're going to be talking about that right now. And so, Daniel, what, what happened while you were in Australia? Glad you asked. First of all, I arrived and I was tired. So there's the thing. Um, it was, you know, this this adventure across the globe. It's half the way around the world. So there is a bit of jet lag involved in any direction you may be going. I also got punched in the face by jet lag when I got back. Praise God for grace. But, you know, on Tuesday after I arrived in Australia, we decided to go after what I would call territorial warfare. That's what I really went for. And, 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 this, and the trip actually expanded. Initially, I was only going to Adelaide. But when a group in Port Macquarie learned I would be going to Australia, they invited me to that city as well, also Tyree. And so I ended up going to that area of Australia during a second week. And so I ended up extending my trip after the initial booking. And so we, um, we were there for two weeks. Uh, one week was in Adelaide, the other week was in the Tyree and Port Macquarie cities. And in Adelaide, the, the whole purpose of going was for this, this agenda of territorial warfare. And I was talking with Pastor Paul Tothill, and we got on the subject of breakthrough and citywide work and uh, some other things. And, and then we got into ruling spirits and powers and authorities and the heavens and all of that. And, and it just kind of came out that... Uh, warfare <laughs> could be effectively executed because we've learned a lot, folks. And uh, in the course of our discussion, it was basically unveiled that a trip to Australia for some territorial warfare was in the cards. I was invited. And so guess what? I went to Australia to do that. And on Tuesday, we, uh, we, we did it. And, and this is what we did. So the day began and I, I was doing some prayer with um, one of our people from the States in the, in the morning. And then we, we went after that and, and began to go around the city. And we went to a lot of important places that we determined were of significance in the spirit realm by the courthouses. We went by the ley line. Um, we went by the, uh, the, the hills. And actually, we went up into the hills during that excursion with the, the pastor and some of his leadership. And we actually found an altar um, for witchcraft purposes, just like sitting up there, like when we hiked way up. And so um, we went there. We, we went other places. Actually, with the altar, it was really cool because we went around with this oil, right? So we were like pouring oil all over the place, like all over the city. And <clears throat> when we went to the, uh, the, the, the hills, we actually poured oil on their witchcraft altar and knocked it over in Jesus' name and um, spit on it. Yeah. And so 
we went around the city and anointed all these places with oil and came back. I actually did some sessions with people that were local there, uh, people associated with the, the church in Adelaide. And, and then around seven o'clock in the evening, we got started on the warfare praying. So in, in the beginning of the day, we were really running around the city, linking everything in the spirit with with anointing oil. We even went over to the, the, the Bay Area and, and poured oil in the water. And we were linking all these areas. And then we, we came back and did some prayer. And, and it was a closed group. It was myself. It was uh, Pastor Paul, his wife, Tracy, and some of their leadership. And, and it was that, it was, that was it. We, we didn't invite like a, a church-wide thing. Why? Well, primarily because when you're dealing with really high-level stuff, I prefer to not implicate people that are vulnerable to backlash, who have lots of open doors, or who simply don't have faith that anything's going to happen because that actually takes away from rather than adding to. You know, there is a unity uh, in the spirit that um, does exist when believers come together, but when believers in Jesus Christ come together who don't share belief in the power of God, that unbelief actually steals from the power available. It's it's a battle. I've, I've found myself in this before. I just try to stay as far away from that as possible, especially when you're dealing with some heavy stuff like trying to contend with powers that sit and hold authority over a whole city, maybe who have been there for hundreds or even thousands of years. And so we had already prior to this trip actually identified through discerning of spirit, seeing um, in the spirit what was going on over there, the, the main rulers, one of them was a two-headed serpent. It's, it was really interesting, this giant thing, kind of like from the spirit, if you were to look at it, came out of the sea, wrapped itself through the hills in Adelaide and came up into the city where its mouth was open. There, there was another spirit that was like a giant aboriginal spirit. It had bones on it. It had a spear with poison on the tip. Um, and we even got some uh, close to proper names for these spirits from one of our people in the know. And so we began to uh, go after what we knew was there. We also had discerned that there was a, kind of like a, a tarp over the city and the spirit held down by stakes to to kill life. Think about how grass grows green, but if you put a tarp over a patch of grass, all the grass under it will turn brown while the grass around it is green. It was like kind of like something like that over the city, as well as this like grid where they were sucking life out of people and filtering that to the, the spirits that were in charge and so they were getting powered by people and their energies that, you know, and, and so there was all these things going on and it actually unraveled into even more complexities than that once we got into the prayer. And what we did as we were engaging in prayer is that we uh, began to address forcefully um, the, 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 the principalities themselves. And, you know, I, I mean, this is not something that obviously I would recommend be done outside of assignment because it requires assignment specific authority to do this without backlash. Daniel Duval, you, you did this. Did you get backlash? Well, no, because I was on assignment. I, I didn't get backlash. I didn't get sick. I didn't get dismantled or destroyed in some kind of way. Um, we won. And, and so the thing is, though, we were on assignment and God had basically said, this is what I want you to do. And we're listening to the promptings of the Holy Spirit and following the Lord into his battle. 
and it happened to be over this city called Adelaide. And so we go after the powers of heavens with the armies of God and angels and with the authority of Jesus Christ and with all kinds of other weapons of warfare. For the Bible says the weapons of our warfare, and that is a plural word, by the way. Um, and, and so we executed warfare, and the way we did it was I actually pulled up Elena, who has been on my program before, who happens to be quite a bit of a, a seer in the spirit. And, and one of the things that we have learned like to do during our, all, like, what do you say, our coaching sessions where I am working with her one-on-one, and this is even true of all of the survivors that I work with, I will ask them what they are seeing in the spirit or in their own System And of course, if you've listened to many programs, you will understand that language. If not, just visit bridemovement.com, go to our mind control page and begin to educate yourself. But uh, this ability can actually be carried out into the context of territorial warfare. And it was. Uh, praise God for Elena. And so as I was praying against things going on in the spirit, she was actually able to see, almost like a movie would play out, what would happen in the spirit realm in response to all of the warfare prayers I was praying. And so as she is on Skype and I'm sitting there and everyone's kind of listening in, we go back and forth for their territory, myself and Elena. And uh, it, it was really cool because they were able to see something that they hadn't really seen before. This is, I think, something that's kind of new for for most people to see um, authority and warfare coming from one person while seeing and identifying in the spirit is coming from another person with a back and forth between the two gifts in order to execute a, a kingdom assignment. So... We were doing that. I would go pray and and hit certain things, and she would call out what she saw happening and what she saw needing to be addressed. And then I would go again and and pray some more and address some things. And so we wound up getting really fancy with this stuff. We found out that not only did the first head of the serpent have to be addressed that came out of the sea, we also had to address the second head of the serpent, which went and descended all the way into Antarctica and ultimately into what we would call other timelines. It's really crazy stuff. Territorial warfare does take you a bit out of the box in so far as what you're going to deal with. And so, you know, sometimes people listen to the show and think, oh yeah, this guy sounds nuts. Um, obviously all the stuff he's talking about has no relevance to my life. Well, maybe it doesn't, but I'll tell you what it does have relevance for. If you want to go to higher levels of spiritual warfare, it's just going to be relevant, especially if you want to be of the company of people that's going to set cities and territories free in Jesus name. You know what? We have to deal with it on that level, and we were dealing with it on that level. So here we are dealing with timelines, and there were other things coming off of this uh, serpent that needed to be dealt with manifesting in other dimensions. And so all of that had to be addressed in prayer. We were there for, I think, about an hour and 15 minutes doing some solid back-and-forth warfare, and then we were done. It was it was quite profound, though. Oh, yeah, and I can't forget, we also ended up getting uh, <laughs> um, a certain military base implicated in, in all of our warfare. Pine Gap. Elena could literally hear the cries of the children in the cages coming from under that military base. It's, it's just really, really wild. It's what begins to open up in the spirit as you... As, as you go. So we were breaking connections and going after uh, what needed to be addressed in prayer. And, and man, it was powerful. You know, the atmosphere was just charged with the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you what, there was some pr- pretty wild uh, reports that the pastor began to get from 
people in his church following this time of prayer that we did. Just, just really, really interesting as it followed um, that Wednesday service, which was an evening service. There, there was a lot more people attending than usual, and it wasn't advertised, so that was really interesting. Obviously, the rest of the week was pretty exciting, a lot of breakthrough, a lot of really cool things going on. And so we, we, we called it very, very successful. I, and I, I was just so grateful to be part of God's agenda to to advance his kingdom you know in this kind of way i think territorial warfare is pretty new for most people for some it's been it's an idea that's been around but really uh, you know it's not always so successful but it's interesting we've been kind of doing territorial warfare for some time because of what we deal with with many of the survivors i work with and one of those things actually came out when we were dealing with Thoth, and uh, we talked about that in a, a program with Robert Van Dries Mitchell and Elena called Thoth Ma'at and Implants. And, and we were talking about how when we went up against Thoth twice, there were two hurricanes that manifested, both striking Long Island, Bahamas, and then moving in their respective directions, one's towards the United States where Elena lives, and of course the other one towards the UK where Robert lives. And it, it's just, just wild stuff that happens. And so... Anyway, we uh, were really happy about that. Then I went to Port Macquarie, which uh, had me and Tyree for two days uh, doing a bit of conference teaching and, and so on and so forth. We also did private sessions with people over there, and then we moved to Port Macquarie. And God made it very clear that we were supposed to do warfare for that city too. And I didn't actually go to Port Macquarie with the express intent of doing territorial warfare. I was kind of tired to be honest by the time we got around to friday which is when it ended up getting scheduled we canceled an evening session in order to do that warfare and, and interestingly enough god worked it out that we had access to a, a, a church it was an anglican church on a hill it kind of overlooks the entire city of port macquarie and it's just really interesting it was the first church i believe that was built in that area and so it had a lot of historical significance. And um, so we gained access to that. It, it was actually very significant that that's what God worked out, that we could have access, we could go up. And we went up on the tower that went outside the highest point on that hill in the church. And you can see the whole city from that vantage point. It's, it, it was really cool. So we went up there Friday night to pray. And it was me and four others, two pastors and two other um, intercessors that joined us. And uh, we were to do territorial warfare. And so as we went up there, you know, God had identified several spirits that we were going to have to address very specifically. One was a dragon and another one was another giant serpent. Uh, Australia has a big thing with snakes. It was really interesting because when I went, before I went to Australia, I had a dream where a King Brown, which is like a, one of their giant snakes, was trying to attack me. And so I, I, I got in a fight with the King Brown and then again, I got in a fight with the King Brown and, and pulled out a blowtorch and just consumed it with fire in the dream. It was actually really cool. And then I knew, <laughs> we're coming for you, Australia, in Jesus' name. So uh, we're on the uh, tower and 
our instructions were basically go after this dragon, go after this serpent, go after the four winds. Interesting. I would have never thought in my own mind to go after the four winds, north, south, east, and west. But God said you have to you have to pray on, on those. And, and um, also we had to go after the ley line that was there. And uh, as we began to pray, we were supposed to pour oil on the top of that... Um, church as a prophetic act and what we did was we poured it the oil in a circle to kind of represent 360 degrees we were sending our prayers out in 360 degrees uh from that point that historical point so it touched the whole city so we poured oil in a circle and, and then we were praying up there and um that was really the way it played out is that i i kind of had a list of things that i knew were needing to be addressed and so everyone else up there not really familiar with how territorial warfare is done or just how to go after things in the spirit and pray. It was primarily listening to me, maybe uh, praying in tongues a little bit that they were. I was just going off. And um, then what I would do is I would ask if anyone was seeing anything of significance. And, and the interesting thing was is that everybody was seeing things of significance. It was like uh, the seer realm just opened up and everyone was seeing in the spirit when we were in this space. Uh, Pacific warfare it was actually really really cool and so as I would go into warfare and go after this thing go after that thing whatever then I'd ask who is seeing something of significance and the report would come back you know and so one of the things that came back was there's a woman on a throne and she's saying who dares defy me or whatever and she's sitting over the area and she said I serve Lucifer so she got knocked out of her throne and the angels took her up before God for judgment and you know we put a giant something through the dragon and the, 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 the serpent obviously got what was coming to it. And uh, we also ended up addressing some kind of crocodile spirit uh, in, the, in the region. And there was a giant spirit that was in the mountain under the church. He got his as well. Then God, uh, we, as we were dealing with the four winds, it was interesting. One of the pastors saw three of them come in, north, south, and east. <laughs> they were beings. They were actually like angels. It's, now this, I didn't, it's just wow okay but they were like angels the fourth one though and this is the one that really blew me away couldn't come in he was blocked and so when I began to pray for the one that was blocked I knew I, I, I prayed against the wall and I collapsed the wall that was blocking it and I also prayed this that he would have his weapons returned to him now this one I never there's no teaching obviously you don't get that in Bible school hey Bible School 101, give the fourth wind south his weapons back if you get in territorial warfare. I mean, they're not going to tell you that. The pastor actually saw this being receive his weapons back and accompanying joy because now he was able to do his job. Now, let me tell you something. Spirit realm gets really weird, but God's a God of redemption. And so then the four winds were able to begin doing their job for God in that area as a result of you know all the things we were praying really profound things and then we began to address the uh underwater kingdom as well because it's a port city and there's a lot of water there and so we picked up a huge activity coming out from under the water off the coast and so that began to get addressed and um those that were with us saw you know in the spirit things being liberated from that and now in addition this was the sign that just absolutely rocked everyone's world as we were addressing things there was this light that formed in the north it was like a line of light it was thick you know it was way off in the distance so it would have been miles long no source point 
And I had gone into prayer already, so I had stopped for a moment. I was asking if anyone was seeing of anything significant. And we were all looking at this light and like, hmm, look at that light. And I'm thinking, well, maybe it's like a big lamp or something. I couldn't figure out what was creating this. And neither could anyone else. It actually had no source point. It was very, very interesting. And so then as we continued to pray, I'd say about 80% into the prayer, when I looked, that line of light had become a ring that wrapped itself around the entire city. And in some areas, it was like a thick line of light. In other areas, it was like a, a wave. And we all saw it. Like, I'm not just saying this because, like, you know, I'm delusional in my own mind and I just want to say something that sounds great. I was there with four other people and there were five witnesses that all saw this. Not in the spirit. This was physical. We actually saw it with our physical eyes just looking at this light that circled the whole city. It was amazing. And um, one person tried to catch it on their camera and it didn't work. It was, I don't know if it was too dark or just didn't show up on camera for whatever reason. It's, there's no, you you can't see it. Uh, But we could see it with our eyes. And then the most amazing part of all is that when we were done praying and everything lifted and the spirit of God was like, well done and, everything had been dealt with that was needing to be addressed for the territorial warfare. We saw hundreds of thousands of angels coming in. I mean, it was really, really intense. The ring was gone. It disappeared. It was there, and then it was simply gone. And I take that as a sign that God God moved. And uh, that that was really exciting. That was territorial warfare. Of course, there was other awesome things that happened. Uh, people were blessed. People received from God. There was a ton of breakthrough. I don't even have time to talk about it all. What I'm saying is Australia was a great time. Folks, I am so grateful to Jesus that he is still moving in the earth today and that he hasn't stopped his kingdom advancement agenda. As a matter of fact, I believe we're just getting started. And I think that this is going to be the beginning of a lot of territorial warfare I'll probably personally be involved in and ultimately training, equipping, and releasing others to be involved in as as the Lord leads into that area. Obviously, um, this isn't for the faint of heart, but it is necessary for the plans of God. And so, with that said, I... I'm going to go to a brief break. And then when we come back, we'll be talking about this new documentary that's out called Detestable. And then after that, you'll be hearing about the mercy seat. By the way, keep in mind next week, we start discipleship. If you've been waiting to sign up for a class, pushing it to the last minute, well, we're at the last minute. Folks, we start next week. So if you want to be a last minute sign up, sign up now. And other than that, Books are available. Don't forget to check us out at bridemovement.com and thefireplacechurch.org. You're listening to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall.
Folks, today we're going to be getting into a subject that we are always talking about. It, it, it's the subject of satanic ritual abuse leading to mind control. And today to talk about this subject with me, I, I have a special guest that's never been on my program before. His name is Tom Dunn. He is a documentarian. Now he's worked with Russ Dizdar and he has created a documentary called Detestable. The purpose is to outline things that are going on, things that have been hidden, the crimes that are occurring throughout this country and others dealing with the subject of satanic ritual abuse. And, and folks, let me tell you something. If there's one thing that God wants exposed, it is satanic crimes. And I'll tell you what, I've gotten an advanced copy of this DVD, and it it does exactly that. It exposes, it has a lot of testimonies. Um, man, it, it, it's really awesome to see how God is moving to blow the lid off of this thing and using people like my guest today, so, Tom Dunn, welcome to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. Dan, thank you so much for having me on this program and just uh, opening the door to talk about this film. I'm really happy to be here. Well, you know, Tom, I'm actually really excited that you did the film. Here's the thing. Uh, survivors need a voice. And oftentimes when the voice is coming from their mouth, there's a nominalization that occurs. It's this idea that they can be told, well, your story is so ridiculous, you must be making it up. Um, no one can believe it, and everyone that can closes their ears because they don't want to deal with it. But you you guys have put together a documentary that really breaks conversation open and kind of forces the subject. It, it, it's not really possible to watch this documentary you guys put together and walk away saying, yeah, this is a bunch of nonsense. You, you guys are giving a voice to survivors. And I, I just want to begin here, man. Um, what gave you the vision to put together this documentary? Well, it actually started about eight or nine years ago. I wanted to make this film. And I had... Uh, um, I had found this guy named Russ Isdar through a podcast and I had an interest in filmmaking and I thought I, I listened to his stories and he was talking about something that I had not heard in a long time. And my interest at the time was, was more of an entertainment value. I thought if I make this film, this is going to be one of the, one of the scariest films ever made just because it's real. And I like the idea of just kind of uh, creeping people out that, you know, and just giving them a thrill that, that way. So that was my uh, motivation eight years ago. So I contacted Russ and he, um, he said, well, if, if you want to do this, he said, that's fine. He said, just research this and research this, you know, and he just kept give, giving me things to research and to study. And so what turned into me wanting to make a film turned into me learning about this issue and spending eight years really working with somebody who's uh who, who knows a lot about this stuff and has dealt with it for over 30 years and um then i then i moved into doing counseling myself and meeting a lot of these people so there was a um you know there was a change there you know in the middle from me wanting to make a movie that i thought would be entertaining to me wanting to make a movie 
that I thought was going to uh, benefit people, that was going to bring edification to the church, that was going to expose the darkness, that was going to give the salvation message. And, you know, over over eight, you know, eight or nine years, I've grown in the Lord. I've become stronger. I've become stronger in spiritual warfare and intercessory prayer and just learning about, you know, uh, putting on the full armor of God and just, you know, um, all these things. So, you know, God did a work in me and that's where we're at. And I'm thankful that I didn't make the movie back then. He was preparing me mm. all these years to do it. So last, I would say September, I really felt a calling, you know, on my heart to make this film. And I, um, I just kept asking the Lord for confirmation and he kept giving me confirmation and I couldn't, uh, I couldn't put it off any longer. He'd been preparing me for a long time. So we kind of dove into it and I just kind of put out, put out the word, Hey, you know, if anybody wants to help me do this, this is what I'm doing. And we raised the money along the way. I didn't raise the money first. We, we made the decision. We're going to do it whether we get the funding or not. So I, I talked to my wife and I said, Hey, the Lord's put this on my heart. I don't know if we're going to get, you know, the funding, but um, I want I want to do it no matter what because he he wants me to. So we made the decision to do it, and by the time that you know we were done, you know, with the movie, all the funding had came come in. Wow. And we did it on a very, um, yeah, we did it on a very modest budget. Films are expensive, and uh, the only reason I mention this number is just to know, you know, the way the Lord worked. You know, I I made the film for all the money we brought in was about $7,500, which is crazy because films are very expensive. And, and um, that's just all praise to God. So I mean, we dove into it. And when I, I kind of had a plan in my mind, I was like, if we do this, we're going to do it quick. I don't want this hanging out there. And, you know, I set some goals and we hit those goals. And uh, like I've been telling people, the only thing that didn't go as planned was the editing. I, I wanted to do the editing in one month and it took two months. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's amazing that you put together a movie with under $8,000 in your budget. That That's phenomenal. Um, you could literally buy a camera and a lens and spend just about that much. Uh, throw on a th well, tripod and, and uh, yeah, you're just about there, man. Amazing. Well, no, and that's exactly right. And that includes the price of the camera that I use to, uh, to make this film. And I did a lot of research on what kind of lights, what kind of camera. I'm not a, I'm not a director of photography. I'm, I'm a guy with a camera and an airplane ticket. And that's, that, that's how I made the film. And that's kind of my style. I kind of shoot from the hip. And if I wanted, I could have bought three times the camera. But I didn't want to do that for this film because I have to be able to travel with it. I need something lightweight. I need something that, that I can just, you know, move easily with it. I mean, my backpack was weighed me down, you know all these places that I went and I had to, I had to get it as light as I could and um, just something that was going to be functional, you know, to make this movie. But again, you know, the reason for, for mentioning that stuff is just, you know, the Lord helped me. He gave me discernment and helped <laughs> me make the decisions. And I had some hard decisions to make. And for me, cause I, I'm more of a director. I'm not a director of photography. I have a friend that's an amazing photographer and if if the budget would allow it, I could have brought him along and we could have had a, you know, we could have took it up a notch. But th this is what we got. And uh, I'm, I'm very pleased with the, uh, you know, with the final product. Now, let's talk about the final product. What did you guys set out to build 
with this film? What is the vision of what this film will accomplish? Um, several different things, several different things. I had in my mind from the beginning that I wanted to make, make something to challenge the church with and to present to the church. And what I mean by that is your average churchgoer who, you know, goes to church on Sundays and, you know, they, they, they live a good life and, and they follow the Lord and, you know, they um, are, you know, they're faithful to him. But maybe, you know, they don't they don't know about this issue. For me, when I learned about the truth about satanic ritual abuse and satanic covens, it affected me in a way where I thought, okay, I've either got to become, I've either got to go in hiding or I've got to get strong and I've got to go right towards these people. Okay, because I was very fearful at first. I understood the concept and I believed it was true. But when I realized how big the network was and how sophisticated it was, I became fearful. And I had to pray and the Lord helped me through that fear. But one of the things that I want to accomplish with this film is the edification of the church and to show them, hey, this is going on. This is a real thing. And, you know, not only is it, you know, the not only is it happening but it's happening everywhere you know we we tried to cover that in the film the the three main people that are interviewed you know they never met each other um before you know the film was made they they know each other now only online but they're telling very similar stories from di- very different locations and you know that that was another thing was just to kind of show okay this is going on all over the place okay and you know there's more than just those three main interviews we had some others in there also so another one was um, obviously to present the gospel message and that that's definitely in there and that shows a hope you know for survivors and victims you know and I, I think very specifically of uh, Kim's story and Greg Reed's story in the film where they uh, you know towards the end where they just kind of explain, you know, how they got saved and how they got pulled out and how God helped them along, you know, time. So I want, you know, I wanted the gospel message to be in there, but it's also, you know, it's the edification of the church, the gospel message and the exposure of uh, what's going on and, uh, and what the enemy's doing. Awesome. Now, you really do accomplish that. I saw the film. Thank you again for the advanced copy. I really appreciate you guys sending that to me. And uh, now let's let's talk about uh, your adventure in actually putting this together, right? Um, what was it like for you going through the traveling, uh, putting boots on the ground, and uh, seeing the locations of the survivor story and actually um, interviewing the survivors on location at some of the locations where they actually received their abuse. Um, Was that a very emotional thing? Um, What was that like from your perspective? I think of, uh, I think of Guy's story in the film. We met him actually when he came to the world turned upside down conference in Columbus. That's how we met him. And he came there, he told us his story, and um, I, I actually videotaped him at that conference just so we could have a reference 
for his story. And he knew one day that we wanted to make a film and the plan was to eventually get out to Oregon. And when I, when we met him in Columbus, he told the stories and he told the places where they happened. And I, immediately I thought back then, this has been over a year and a half, almost two years ago now, I said, I want to go to those places. I want to see him for myself. Not because I didn't believe him, but I think it's good to vet out people, you know, and, and it's, it, I thought if I'm going to tell this story, we got to go to those places. And we went, we went to those places and they were exactly how he described them to me almost two years ago. And it, it was exciting for me because I thought, wow, here, here's a story, you know, guy could have showed up in Columbus and he could have told us a bunch of lies, but here we are, we're, we're, um, we're vetting this out and we're nailing down the proof and we're going to the places. And it, it was just, um, it was just neat, you know, to, to see that happen. And I, I was especially excited because I knew, you know, I, I had met Guy, you know, back then. And I was especially excited to go out there and to um, to see, you know, those places that, you know, that were a part of his story. So and there's a lot more to his story that didn't make it into the film. But, um, yeah. And, and the same thing with Greg. You know, I had heard his interview on the radio a few years ago. And I had imagined in my head probably five years ago what this place looked like. And then to go to the place and go to the house where the house used to stand and go to the church, you know, where this um, where this kid was sent in to recruit Greg into the cult. So, I mean, it was uh, it was interesting to see with my own eyes the places that were talked about, uh, um, you know, by the by the survivors. Now. We talk about this on my show a lot, and, and all of my listeners, they are very familiar at this point with the conversation on um, what satanic ritual abuse is, um, even extending into the government-sponsored mind control side of things. We even get into the Illuminati components of things and how this all plays together and kind of, well, exactly like a grid that is a global conspiracy. And, you know, as you're going through the creation of this film, uh, you were getting stories from the the individuals that had, had agreed to go on camera with their stories. Um, what were some of the overlapping elements like, of their information? You had said that earlier. It's like, yeah, they're, they're like essentially telling the same story, which, well, that's what we've experienced. The survivors that have come on my program and talked, they're saying very, very similar things. And um, what what is some of the information that was being brought out by them in your documentary? Well, you know, how many times, Dan, have we heard the uh, heard somebody say they put a knife in my hand, then they put their knife, then they put their hands over my hand? How many times have we heard that story? You know, and when I say we, I say you. I mean you and me. You know, because that is just like uh, almost like a trademark of what we hear. But then, you know, when you watch the film, uh, there's a couple examples of this. When you hear the uh, the pastor's wife speak, whose name is Debbie, and then you hear the pastor, Noel. And when they describe this, the run-ins they had with the Satanists, they, they didn't weren't talking about kids wearing black, you know, that would be considered part of the goth culture. They were talking about people who were 
white collar workers. They were, they had high places in uh, political office. They were, you know, in government and the one of them was a police chief, you know, just bankers, all, all of these people, you know, that, uh, that run in these circles. So, you know, I interviewed these two people separate, but yet they gave, gave the same story. You know, I also think of, um, of Kim and also of, um, of, excuse me, of Guy, who were both told not to tell about what they saw. And it's all, you know, those, those two people never met each other, but they, t- they told the same story, you know, when they witnessed, you know, these horrific uh, things. Don't tell anybody or we're going to do this to you. Almost, almost word for word, they were told the same thing. So it, it's just, um, you know, it's interesting, and I, I think it adds a lot to the credibility of what they experienced when, it's just almost identical things, you know, and, and there's even um, similarities, you know, between um, between Greg and Guy. I can't remember. Oh, uh, no, it was uh, maybe it was uh, Kim and Greg who told about rituals and people wearing animal masks. So, again, they don't know each other, but they're telling the same story. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, uh Going back, you had said earlier that, you know, you had a vision to just create a film. Now, the the interesting thing about film, uh, this is actually a component of our vision. I don't don't know if you know this, but uh, we, well, probably not through Bride Ministries, but we plan to actually build our own media studio. The amazing thing is that some of the information... (laughs) that we're getting from the survivors that we are working with is profound. It's phenomenal. And it, and it would turn into class a uh, entertainment with the ability to put behind it kingdom agenda, as opposed to Luciferian agenda, which is what fills most of the movies that make it mainstream. Um, and so it just seems like the most logical direction to go if you're going to begin to broadcast a message beyond the parameters of the church. Um, now, as far as your vision for media, uh, I find that very exciting um, that, 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 that God has been leading you down this path. Looking at this project and uh, what this has done and um, how it was being able to be executed, are you also seeing a larger vision for God using media and using you in media to um, advance his kingdom? You know, I, um, I have a lot of things. I have a lot of ideas. That, that I want to do and we there's no doubt that we could take this issue you know a, a lot further and, and go much much deeper I mean we didn't even we, we really barely scratched the surface w- one of the things I wanted to do in the film was to cover the Hampstead case in, in the UK but we just we couldn't make it happen because I wanted to get the film done you know in a timely manner but um, th- there's a lot more to cover and I don't I I would love to do film, you know, for a living and do it in a way that's going to bring glory to the Lord and, you know, uh, make tools that that can be used to uh, to preach the gospel and share the word and and do just what this film did. 
but I want I want to be very careful that I don't jump out in front of the Lord, you know, in front of the Holy Spirit. I want Him to guide me. I, I was really careful on this one, and I before I make any further decisions, I'm really going to pray and fast, you know, for God's guidance. Uh, one, I really I have a desire to make a film about abortion. I really do, and mm. uh, there's there's some doors opening on that, you know, on that side of things, and. I don't know. We'll see what happens. I, I just really want to be obedient to the Lord, but uh, I, I would love to do this full time. It's not. It's not happening right now. I, you know, I made this film in nine months. But what I didn't mention is I was working a full time job, forty, fifty hours a week, also while I was making this film. No, so, sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, with a so, with a seven thousand yeah. dollar budget, I don't know how you could have fit meals and rent and <laughs> or <laughs> mortgage. Yeah. Um, right, right. You know. My goodness. Okay. Well, um, now, why don't you talk to me a little bit about your experience with um, actually working with survivors face-to-face and how God has given you, you know, a, a growing heart in that area j- just for the survivors themselves. You said that you had done a little bit of counseling yourself or maybe a lot. I don't know. What has been your experience as far as the front lines of this ministry are concerned? Most of my experience has been with uh, Russ Dizdar, who uh, is, um, m- many people know, his uh, his organization is called ShatterTheDarkness.net. Well, that's the website, ShatterTheDarkness.net. But I-, I worked alongside of him, and again, he kind of took me under his wing when I-, I approached him about doing a film, and he said, well, here, l- l- let me show you. And I had no plans of doing any of that stuff. And it was just the Lord that softened my heart. And w- once I realized what was going on, I, you know, I became angry. I thought, man, nobody believes these people. I want to, I want to help them. I want to, I want to do something. And then I would hear these stories and I would see the evidence and we would just, you know, I would get all the inside information and we would go out on cases and things like this. And I met the people who were abused, you know, and they would come to us, you know, at the conferences and we, we would, a ton of cases that we're working in Ohio that are open cases right now. So you meet these people and you're just like, man, if I don't do this, who's who's going to do something? Because most of the Christians I know are very fearful, like I used to be. They're scared of this issue, um, which you know when when you dive into the scriptures and when you're you know when you're close to the Lord and you draw close to Him, there's no reason to be fearful. Okay, um, I learned that now, but a lot of people, it, it's it's going to take them a while for them to make that step. So in the meantime, who, who's going to do this? Who's going to help these people? There's so much request, so many requests for help that we can't get to them all. And I'm sure you're experiencing the same thing. So, I mean, that, that was the thing is, you know, somebody's, somebody's got to do this. Somebody's got to help these people. And the Lord gave me a burden for it and just, um, you know, just filled my heart with compassion. And I mean, we, I would be honest in saying we don't necessarily, you know, go looking for this stuff. We're looking to to minister to anybody. I don't care if they're a, you know, if they're a Satanist or a survivor or if they're a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon. We want to tell them. We want to give them the gospel. But because of what we do, and there's nobody else, there's not a lot of people, you know, out there doing it. Um, obviously, these people seek us out, and we're very, um, you know, we're very happy to to do everything we can to pray and to see them healed and and uh, integrated and delivered and, you know, all these things. So 
it's just it's something that I couldn't fight that I, I honestly tried to fight. I had no interest in it, but mm-hmm. he, here I am. And um, and you know, I, I feel like because of my interest in filmmaking, it, it worked out perfect that I was able to you know to be the one to make this film. And I hope many more, you know, I hope other people will will rise up and do do more projects like this, because if we had 100, it wouldn't be enough. Well, that's exactly right. I uh, I mean, and, and this is the thing. Um, you're 100 percent correct. The need is phenomenal and it just grows. And for us, uh, there has been a lot of incoming to the extent that, you know, I'm trying to build what we call it, a, a, a the Bride Ministries uh, community of DID coaches. And we've been essentially uh, creating a platform for survivors that have no means to apply and then get helped through their dissociation as a ministry underwrites the cost of their help. And um, I, I, I realize that I can't possibly find uh, coaches as, at the rate of the requests coming in, nor do we necessarily have the the resources coming in to underwrite the number of applicants that we are getting for help because it's just continually coming in and increase. It's it's huge, huge need, and um, that's just based on the awareness there is that's out there, which isn't a lot. And hopefully, your video, I mean, makes a lot more, but. I mean, the the need for a solution is so great. And that's um, one of the reasons why we're actually now looking at building a whole DID coaching school because it's like there has to be an army of people that are trained and released to do this work, to not be in fear, to know how to minister inner healing, to know how to minister deliverance, the power of God, and uh, to do it on the level of the crimes that are being committed. Because I don't know if you've run into this, Tom, but... Uh, we're not up against the same problems that believers were up against in the 1700s. Things have gone really, really far. And, um, you know, I, I just want to ask about that. Like, as, as you've had this conversation with people and, and, and been, you know, looking at how far things have gone, I mean, what is your perspective on where the church is and, and where she needs to get in order to be effective in its response to what you are now exposing? You know, I'll have days where I'm discouraged and I'm encouraged in the same day about the church. The church is the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. And uh, Jesus said, I built my church on the rock and the gates of hell will not, uh, you know, come against it. The powers of darkness will not come against it. So just that verse alone gives me a lot of hope, but I'm just, I'm concerned. And I love the church, but at the same time, I get, I get real frustrated with the church and I just have to pray for help with that because God had so much patience with me. And just my hard-headedness and my, you know, um, how long it took me to learn, you know, what I feel is just basic stuff. So I'm very hopeful that that we can, um, you know, that we can make some powerful moves, that we can have revival. But it's, you know, it's going to take people who will repent, 
and who will submit to God's will. And I mean, you know, it's a combination of many things, but I'm concerned about a lot of things. I'm concerned about a lot of people who call themselves believers, you know, false false prophets, just a lot of this really, um, for lack of a better word, just marshmallow Christianity, you know, and just really soft, you know, theology. I'm uh, I'm not a theologian by any means, but my life has been turned upside down. I, you know, um, I I share this almost every time. I don't watch TV or movies anymore like I used to, you know, because it, it's boring to me. What's exciting to me is just the idea of sharing the gospel with somebody, and I don't know if they're going to reject it or if they're going to receive it. That that's exciting to me. That's more exciting than any movie that I could ever watch or TV show, or any any entertainment. Because this person's life, this their, their eternal life, is on the line, and you know, and that's just a, that's just a normal thing, you know, that all Christians should experience. But we're talking a lot deeper stuff than that. I mean, you know, I mean, you understand, you know, uh, threats on your life, things like this, and just you know, dealing with really dark stuff and spiritual warfare, and and people doing rituals against you and things like this. So, um, you know. This is touched on a little bit in the film, and um, Gregory Reed talks about it. You know, he says that he doesn't think the church is ready, but I think we can get ready. But it's going to take, you know, um, uh, people like yourself, you know, putting together a school, and just just anybody out there. You know, I've gotten so many responses from people that have already seen the film. Like, man, what can I do to help? Include me in this. Uh, you know, I have time. You know, I'll do what I can. Show me what to do. Show me what to do. And I want to be involved. I want to help these people. So so that's good. But, uh, you know, we really got to ramp it up. Now, now, how are you going about getting this film out there? Um, what are the distribution channels? Um, right now, the only place to get it really is from, from our website. That's the main place to get it. And... I'm uh, I'm looking for distribution. I, I don't want to say that I'm actively beating down doors every day. I'm not, but I'm just kind of praying for the right deal to come along. Um, you know, somebody that's that's not going to rip me off, but you know that that's going to help me get it out far and wide. And uh, you know, the plan is to be able to you know to finance the next film. You know, making you know to make um, a return on this one so we can do another one. So, but um, the only place right now is to get it, to get the film is at our website, which is detestablefilm.com. But we're, we're looking um, for other opportunities, and I don't think they're going to happen in just, you know, they're not going to happen overnight or maybe even one month. It's just going to take a while to get the word out there. And I think once people see the film, we're trying to put it in the hands of anybody that has, you know, the ability to make a decision about distribution. So I would love for it to be in Christian bookstores, and the Christian bookstore here locally has agreed to carry it, which is great. And um, I, I haven't even got it out to them yet, but you know we're going to give them some copies, and then hopefully that'll be considered an experiment, and then we can go to other stores and say, hey, look, you know, we sold, you know, the, this DVD sold here. Would you carry it? And then hopefully open a door for distribution. So we're looking for that deal. We don't have it yet, but. Um, we're just praying, Lord, open the door, because we want to get this into the hands of as many people as possible. 
we're also um, going to have it available on Vimeo. And I'm actually, I've been trying to get this thing uh, uploaded to Vimeo for about two weeks now without any success. So I don't know what we're doing wrong. I've had people who know how to do this over and we just, for some reason we can't get it, but we're going to get it, but it will be available there for people to buy digitally or to rent digitally. So that'll be another um, option for people. Awesome. Well, man, um, what is your website one more time? The website is detestablefilm.com. And uh, you can go on there. You can see uh, one of the trailers right at the top. And then if you scroll down a little bit, you'll see a couple options for buying the film. One is just buying the film only. And then the other one is uh, you can buy the film and the extra footage, which is um, a completely separate DVD with over... Uh, it's about two hours and 17 minutes of uh, extra interviews and things that just would not fit in the film. Mm-hmm. Folks... Um... This film is actually very, uh, very good. It's it's a tool. I saw it. It is something that you can put in the hands of somebody that needs to be educated on the subject, what satanic ritual abuse is. Um, and there are enough interviews and segments that explain the wider ramifications. I know you have some segments with Russ Dizdar talking about the global conspiracy component of this conversation as well as um, implications into the last days. Uh, folks, it, it's well put together. It tells a story. It's available. And, um, you know, Tom, I just want to thank you for being a vessel and being willing to go there with God to put this together, do this project. And, um, you know, I commend you. I support you and what you've done. And, uh, folks, I really hope that you go and check them out. And that you pick up some of these DVDs and um, watch them yourself and also give them to people. I mean, educate them. Maybe they're not ready for some of the stuff we talk about on this program. But, man, uh, this conversation, you could start it with the DVD that Tom has put together. So, um, Tom, again, thank you for coming on the program. And uh, I I just bless you in the name of Jesus, brother. Hey, thank you so much, uh, Daniel. I appreciate it so much. And uh, just uh, God bless you and every one of your listeners and every one of your crew. And, uh, uh, you know, just uh, Lord uh, bless you and keep you. Amen. Folks, don't go anywhere because as soon as we come back from this segment, we're going to be getting into uh, the mercy of God. You're listening to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. Mercy is a subject that I don't get into very often. Not because I don't believe in mercy. I believe that we serve a God of mercy. I just don't talk about it very often. But it was interesting. A few weeks ago when I was preparing for Fireplace Church and 
we were getting ready to record a whole bunch of sermons to take us through the summer. When I finally got to that final the sermon I was going to give, I was asking God, you know, God, what do you want me to talk about for this last one? And, and you know, the interesting thing was that God said, well, Daniel, I want you to talk about mercy. And I'm like, but God, I talk about kingdom. I talk about dimensions. I talk about spiritual warfare. I talk about mind control. I talk about portals. Why do you want me to talk about mercy? You know, it's like one of those things that you think, well, that'd be kind of dull. Mercy. I mean, this is another Christian term, right? Just something that, yeah, oh yeah, God's a God of mercy, you know, mercy, (laughs) whatever. But God was pretty adamant about this one. He said, no, you're going to talk about mercy. And so I said, it's a good idea. Let's do it. Let's take a look at this subject of mercy. What is your mercy, God? And why, why is this heavy on your heart? Now, I will be making a similar talk to what you're going to hear today at the Fireplace Church, except it'll be produced. You'll get to see me talking. Um, and then we'll have all kinds of effects and stuff. So if you haven't checked us out at thefireplacechurch.org, um, you know what? It's about time you did. But anyway, for the numbers of you that listen only to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall, I was convinced I need to share this on Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall as well, and independently of the Fireplace Church. You know what? Maybe I should just preach it twice. Because when I got done putting together the pieces I, I was pulling together with the Holy Spirit on mercy, I found that it was just so profound. I was like, wow, mercy. This is so cool. You know, it's funny how God will do these things to you where you're like, yeah, you know, that's just another dull subject in the Bible, right? (laughs) Mercy or grace or in Christ. You know, this is so funny how this happens. And we have four discipleship courses through Bride Ministries we offer. We offer grace in Christ, the kingdom, and spiritual warfare. The grace and in Christ are two subjects that at surface level, you know what? They might sound kind of boring. Who wants to talk about grace for eight weeks? I mean, come on, seriously, grace? What's, how can you even talk about grace for eight weeks? You should find out by signing up for one of our discipleship courses. That is a seamless plug, folks. And I don't even teach the class anymore. All I'm saying is grace is profound. Well, you know what else is profound? Mercy and in Christ. Oh, there's just so many goodies in the word of God. And so... As I began to unpack this whole mercy thing, I, I was just blown away. I was like, this is this is incredible. See, the thing about mercy is that it comes from the Greek word elios. And it means kindness or goodwill towards the miserable or afflicted joined with a desire to help them. Now, this is just profound. See, mercy means that God doesn't just feel the pain, the suffering of those that are afflicted, which he does. It's paired with a desire to help him. You know what God's mercy means? God's mercy means he wants to help you. Now that's the profile. Because see, some people, they get stuck right here. They're like, ah, well, God doesn't want to help me. Why does God want to help me? And, um, they, they, they begin to bring up the evidence themselves. Like, well, I'm a drunk, I'm a sinner, I'm a this, I'm a that. I failed God in every way, shape, and form imaginable. God, God is doing good to strike me down with lightning bolts. I mean, we get into this guilt cycle, condemnation thing going on. 
a lot of people have a real struggle. Well, you know, one, they're mad at God because God's not helping them and or, and sometimes it's both at the same time, they think they deserve every bad thing that's happening to them and God doesn't want to help them or that God shouldn't help them because God's holy and they're just a broken down, no good, worthless sinner saved by grace, right? And so there's a lot of challenges that people are trying to work their way through when it comes to conversation on God. But the Bible says that God is a God who's full of mercy. So what does that really mean, though? Some people think, well, that just means that God feels bad for some people. But it's not just that. See, mercy means kindness or goodwill towards the miserable or afflicted, joined with a desire to help them. See, what you need to realize, and what I realize, that God, God has a desire to help me not only out of states of affliction, but into destiny, calling, and appointment he has preordained for my life and for yours. See, mercy, mercy is powerful. But some people, all they see, they see God's anger. God's mad at me. They see God's holiness. God's so good that I'm nothing before him. I'm worthless to him. I'm dirt. I'm scum. I'm poop. Poop. You know what? You may be that way before you come to God through Jesus Christ, but there is a positional righteousness we receive in Christ Jesus that changes that. We have the ability to come before God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. But it's, and so we have actually access to God's mercy through Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to get into that, what, what that means. Because, see, the subject of mercy takes us deep into deep, deep, deep revelation on the power of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, you, you, you need to hear about God's mercy. You're suffering. You're stuck. You're afflicted. You don't know that God wants to help you. Now I'm here to tell you, God is full of mercy. See, some people only expect God's judgment. But God is full of mercy. See, when we see God as untouchable, unapproachable, he's holy, he's angry, we're scum, this division is maintained. It's a block. When people like me come on there and talk about kingdom and partnership with heaven and heaven's resources, it just makes no sense. One of the messages that will help you to bridge the gap between where you are and in your current view of God and where God wants you to be, which is kingdom-mindedness, the subject of mercy is going to be that bridge. I mean, it's it, when you begin to understand the power of God's mercy, it is a bridge into his glory and presence. So to understand mercy, I found that it was greatly helpful to look at what is called the mercy seat. Now, this is subject in the Bible that comes up. It comes up in the Old Testament. Um, it's referenced in the New Testament. It's called the mercy seat. And see, a lot of people, a lot of Christians don't even know what the mercy seat is. I mean, try it. Just go up to a random Christian and say, hey, what's the mercy seat? And watch them squirm. Because not every Christian knows what the mercy seat is. As a matter of fact, you know, they might think it's their couch. Like, Lord have mercy. It's been a long day. 
Haha, <laughs> mercy seat, the couch. I actually identify with that. I have a nice couch, folks. And let me tell you something. I have some long days. And at long, if you talk to me at the end of one of my long days, you will probably hear me say this. I have collapsed on my couch. Praise God for the couch. You know, the couch is really great because you, you get there, it's soft, it's cushy. And you're like, ah, Lord have mercy. <laughs> this is wonderful, right? So, but that, see, the couch is not the mercy seat. I know. You're like, wait a minute. I thought you were really going somewhere with this one, Dan Duvall. No, I wasn't. This had nothing to do with anything I'm talking about. It's called comic relief. All right. Coming back to the real reason why I'm bringing up the mercy seat. See, the mercy seat is something that not everyone knows about. They just don't know what it is. So when you, when, when you hear it, it, it just means very little. What's the mercy seat? In the book of Leviticus, we read about the mercy seat. It says, And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and out. You will overlay it, shall make on it a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side, and two rings on the other side. I'm sure there was somebody didn't know how to count. God made it very clear. Don't get confused. Um, then he said, you will make poles of acacia wood. Overlay them with gold. You will put the poles into the rings in the side of the ark. The ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings. The ark shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark, the testimony which I will give you. Now, Dan Duvall, you said that you were going to tell us about the mercy seat. But that sounds a little bit like something called the Ark of the Covenant. Well, it is. <laughs> so you continue reading and it says, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Nah, see, this is where you, you can't understand mercy seat apart from Ark of the Covenant. It, it's what went on top. So you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Hammered work, you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end, the other cherub other end um, for the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be towards the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony that I will give you. There I will meet with you. And I will speak with you from above the mercy seat and from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. See, in this description I just read to you, 
what you have is you have the Ark of the Covenant, which the, the Ark is like a box to be carried on poles so it can contain something and it's going to be overlaid with gold. And on top of it, you put this thing. It's one piece. It has two cherubs facing each other, their wings going over, and there between them, the mercy seat. And God says, I will speak to you from above the mercy seat. Now, if you study out to what this meant to the ancient Israelites, they believed that God would speak. The divine presence would manifest above the mercy seat and would speak. And that's exactly what God said he would do. He said, I'll manifest. I'm going to speak to you from above the mercy seat. So it's a place where God speaks from. Furthermore, seat, Right? a uh, seat of authority. See, the mercy seat essentially becomes a component of the whole of what is known as the Ark of the Covenant. And this Ark of the Testimony, Ark of the, it, it was designed to contain certain things. According to Hebrews 9.4, these elements were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. These elements were added at later points in time. But the idea is that we're talking about the mercy seat. See, this, this mercy seat was supremely important. Why? Did you know that the Ark of the Covenant was considered the most sacred the singularly most sacred object in ancient Israel. It's huge, hugely important. I mean, this is what went into a place they called the Holy of Holies. The entire temple was built. This was the centerpiece. And the mercy seat was like the centerpiece of the centerpiece. Because the divine presence of God would dwell above it between the cherubim and from there God would speak. Now, see, mercy actually connects us into a revelation of God's kingdom because the mercy seat, the mercy seat is actually a type or shadow of the throne of God itself. You know, there are cherubim that are around the throne of God. How do we know this? Well, we do know this from passages like Ezekiel chapter 1, where we see the living creatures, which are called cherubim later on, and the throne of God. It's, it's, it's all part of that conversation. Also in the book of Revelation, you see again the throne of God, the living creatures, called cherubim. They are around the throne. And so when we see that we are putting the cherubim with their wings covering, then we have the seat. We are looking at a type or shadow of the throne of God because the throne of God becomes a seat of mercy to the nation of Israel um, because God, well, what did God have for them? Hmm. He had kindness or goodwill towards the miserable or afflicted joined with a desire to help them. What did God want to do with ancient Israel? He said, if you follow my laws, blessed will you be in the city, blessed will you be in the country. He said, I want to set you high above all the nations of the earth. You will be the first and not the last, the head and not the tail, above and not the... I mean, he went on and on. Check out Deuteronomy 28. See, God, God had mercy. And so he had a system in order to uh, extend mercy continually 
to the nation of Israel. And it was based around this seat, the mercy seat, which was the cover on the Ark of the Covenant. What would he do? Well, he had them place this whole thing, the Ark, mercy seat on top, in a place called the Holy of Holies in the temple. Now, the temple had a holies of holies. Outside of that was the holy place. And then they had other elements working your way in. You know, you had the outer court, you had the inner court, all these components. And, of course, it all led up to what we're talking about, the centerpiece. And what would happen is once a year, during a feast of Yah, or Yahweh, known as the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in to the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat so that God could grant mercy to the nation of Israel. Forgiveness. Um, but mercy is more than just desiring to forgive sin. It's goodwill towards the miserable or afflicted paired with a desire to help them. What am I saying? Dan Duvall, what are you getting at? Cool. You're really cool with all your types and shadows and stuff and studies on ancient Israel, whatever. Tell me something that's relevant to my life. Let me tell you something that's relevant to your life. God has mercy he wants to extend towards you. And connecting to the mercy of God is done through a revelation of how he granted access to his mercy to ancient Israel through something called the mercy seat. And so when we're looking at this, right, we see once a year on the Day of Atonement, that high priest sprinkles the blood of animals, sacrifice for the atonement of the sins of God's people. The blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is a representation of God's throne from which proceeds God's decrees, his commands, judgments. Remember that in a kingdom, the king sits upon the throne. The divine presence sat upon that mercy seat. So the mercy of God was only received through the proper execution of requirements according to Torah. It required the sprinkling of blood on the Day of Atonement. Now, this is so important. What are we looking at? Mercy. See, when we understand all that it took to connect with the mercy of God, we see the power of what Jesus Christ did and opened up for you. Hebrews chapter 9 it's just profound. I'm going to spend some time there. I'm going to cruise through Hebrews chapter 9. Why? Because you, my friend, need mercy. The Bible says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service in the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which was called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the 
covenant overlaid on all sides with gold in which were the golden pot that had the manna Aaron's rod that budded and the tablets of the covenant and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail why we're talking about shadows of heavenly things. I said the mercy seat is a shadow of the throne of God. And the throne of God is a profound revelation because when you understand the throne of God, you understand that God is a king who abides in a kingdom, a kingdom which is not intended to be left in the dimension which it occupies, or I should say dimensions, plural, which it occupies, but to be extended into the earth through vessels like you and I because we are integrally connected into that kingdom as citizens, children, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ. We're talking kingdom speak here. We're talking interface with heaven and earth. We're talking the mercy seat is a type and shadow of the throne of God. It is so much to unpack here. It boggles the mind. And yet they say, well, we're not going to get into it in detail. Darn! But we're going to continue with verse 6. And it says, now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood. See, he couldn't even go. They would not allow the high priest to go into the Holy of Holies without the blood. Why? Because blood makes an atonement for sins. What's the deal, Dan Duvall, with blood and atonement and sin? And what's the deal, man? I thought blood was satanic stuff. This, that's what they do. They bleed things and you drink blood and do all this. Why does Jehovah God have all this obsession with blood when it's so gross and ugly, nasty, whatever? Okay, let me tell you why. This is very important. Everyone needs to understand the fact that the Bible says in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. See, when Adam and Eve sinned, death entered. This is hugely important. You have to understand that the original generational curse upon humanity was and is death. Death didn't enter until Adam and Eve fell. Death is the problem. Death is the curse. Jesus Christ had to get the keys of hell and death because in order to overcome them, he had to have access to them. Now, now see, this is the thing. Death is only counteracted by its polar opposite. What is the polar opposite of death? The answer is life. So Leviticus 17.11 says, The life is in the blood. Dan Duvall, why does Jehovah have an obsession with blood? It's not an obsession. It's an equation. Just like, you know, negative 1 plus 1, its polar opposite equals 0. In other words, the negative value is negated. Death plus life equals deliverance from original sin and the curse. See, the thing is, in order to grant people deliverance from the power of death, God has to apply life. And so he set up a type and shadow, a system by which the nation of Israel was accessing life. They were 
uh, counterbalancing death with life. And it was through the blood because life is in the blood. Now, this ultimately created a way and a system and a type and shadow which helps us to understand the value of the blood of Jesus because the blood of Jesus was perfect blood, meaning that it had the power to cleanse from unrighteousness and sin every human that has ever existed, past, present, and future. It was the only way that God could solve the problem of sin and death. He had to introduce life and that life had to come from a perfect source and that perfect source could only be found in the very blood that God bled, which is why Jesus Christ died for you and I. But see, this is what we need to understand here. When the high priests went in, they had to go with blood because the blood, they were bringing the the, the life. And, and so the sacrifice had been made. The blood had been collected. They went in and they would sprinkle it as an offering for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicates, this is verse 8. We're back in Hebrews 9, verse 8. The Holy Spirit indicating this that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. No. See, there was a veil there. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with food and drinks, various washings, and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. See, God set up a system that would help us to understand the extent and power of his mercy. What is that? What is mercy? Mercy is kindness or goodwill towards the miserable or afflicted joined with a desire to help them. See, God is illustrating a system and pattern that helps us to understand God's desire to help us. And everything that they set up was symbolic for present time. Symbolic for present time. That's what the Bible says. See, we're setting up a picture of heavenly things. Now that high priest, that's a type in shadow. Because in the new covenant, Jesus Christ becomes the high priest. But he enters once and for all. Wow, wait a minute. See, this thing goes so deep, right? And it's all about God extending to you loving kindness, help. See, the way into the holiest of all was not made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. They set up a system on earth. There was a temple. Before that, there was a tent. They would proceed forth and execute these performances in accordance with Torah. And God, through that system, would grant them forgiveness of sins. But then there was a time of reformation where the type and shadow and all of it illustrates, becomes understood in context of the dimension, the realm in which God is king, heaven itself, the society beyond the veil, the 
um, place where we hope to arrive as believers when we die. No, it's so much more than heaven is not a place you arrive when you die. It's a place you abide as you are. And the access comes through mercy. So the Bible says, but Christ came as high priest. Now we're in verse 11 of Hebrews 9. It says Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is not of this creation. In other words, he said of the... um, the former temple, he said, you know, destroy this and I will rebuild it in three days. He was referring to himself, his own body, which he raised back to life in three days. Jesus Christ as the high priest was the tabernacle, not made with human hands. And he did not come with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place. Now, this is where we have to have a transition. See, Jesus didn't go into the temple in Jerusalem physically as high priest after he died. No. He went to heaven before the throne of God. So he went with his own blood, entered the most holy place once and for all, and obtained something called eternal redemption. The Bible says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of flesh, how much more? Shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, the illustration was, you put life, put out on a mercy seat. God grants forgiveness of sins and extends you help. Now Jesus Christ comes, makes himself that tabernacle sheds his own blood, the perfect redemption from all sin and all death, and lays that before God in heaven. See, by entering that most holy place, which is in the realm of God, far beyond earthly things, we're talking heavenly things, he not only tore the veil between us and heaven when we die. He tore the veil between us and heaven while we live. That the mercy of God is so profound, we are connecting into the most holy place while we live because Jesus Christ entered once and for all. And the bloody shed is an eternal redemption. It speaks continually and does not Stop speaking on our behalf. So we don't need the once a year atonement because Jesus Christ entered once and for all. And for this reason, this is Hebrews 9.15. It says, he is the mediator of the new covenant Hmm. by means of death. For the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise 
of the eternal inheritance. Just as the high priest sprinkled his blood on the mercy seat on earth, Jesus Christ by his own blood entered the most holy place once and for all in heaven. Jesus didn't use the shadow to establish his finished work. He applied his blood in heaven itself and his blood remains continually upon the mercy seat as a testimony to forgiveness. God has enacted on your behalf that he can extend to you Kindness and goodwill joined with a desire to help you. But when you say as a new covenant Christian, my help comes from the Lord, you are talking about a vital connection to the realm of God that is facilitated by the blood of Jesus that speaks continually for he has entered once and for all on your behalf. The Bible says in James 2.13, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. See, people get stuck. They think, God doesn't want to show me mercy. I'm no good. I'm a low-down, worthless. Stop corrupting the truth with these fraudulent accusations against the power of God. For every person that says, I'm too ruined to receive God's mercy, you have negated the power of the blood of Jesus to extend to you vital access to the very realm of God. It's ridiculous. Bible says judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment to the devil and those who partner with him to the end. Judgment is without mercy, but judgment does not triumph over mercy. God desires to show you mercy. He desires to show you mercy. And for those that turn to Jesus Christ, you are actually guaranteed the extension of God's mercy. When you look at being a kingdom citizen, this is so important. The Bible says in Philippians 3.20, for we are citizens in heaven from which we await the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's such a disconnect when it comes to the kind of reality we are ordained to walk in as believers. Such a disconnect. The Bible's so clear about certain things. It says, you know, you are walking in partnership with heaven. You are there. You're there. Why do we continue to fight against God's truth in favor of buying into lies that are just so far beneath God's revelation of who he has made you through what he did? And people are so intent on holding fast to their lies on identity. They're lying. I mean, you 
my fellow believer are a citizen in heaven. How? How can you be a citizen in heaven if you have a physical body on earth? Let me tell you how. It's through something known as the transdimensional nature of the human spirit. Because the Bible says, in Colossians 1.13, we have been translated out of darkness and into the kingdom of his dear son. You're on earth. But there is a component of you that God has connected to his realm. And he's been able to do that. Why? Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, who became the moderator of a new covenant. A covenant that connects us to the realm of God, his kingdom. There's a reason why I'm a kingdom guy. I am not on earth to battle earth from earth. I'm on earth to introduce heaven to earth through agreement. And really, so are you. But if you can't get past the fact that you've been connected vitally to God's realm, and that God has mercy for you, that this is a design of God because he has plans that hinge upon this fact. You can't cooperate. You just can't participate in it. You end up an outsider by choice. It's very necessary that people begin to think and understand kingdom. You know, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, Inasmuch then as we believers have a great high priest who has already ascended and passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession of faith and cling tenaciously to our absolute trust in him as Savior. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize and understand our weaknesses and temptations, but one who has been tempted, knowing exactly how it feels to be human in every respect as we are yet without committing any sin. Therefore, let us with privilege approach the throne of grace, that is, the throne of God's gracious favor with confidence and without fear, so that we may receive mercy for our failures and find his amazing grace to help in time of need, an appropriate blessing coming just at the right time. Can you believe this? Hebrews 4 connects high priest, grace, and mercy. Wow. See, because I said mercy is a shadow of God's throne, and he showed mercy to the nation of Israel as they followed protocol. But Jesus Christ followed protocol once and for all, shedding perfect blood before God, entering into the most holy place, not on earth, but in heaven, not in the shadow, but in the reality that is dimensionally separated from earth, thereby connecting us to the realm of God and rending the veil, which was reflected in the fact that the veil was torn in the physical temple when he died. Profound. But it says he's a high priest. Not only is he a high priest that is without sin, but he identifies with us in our weaknesses. It connects him in his role to everything. And then we see that God's throne is called a throne of grace. 
this is so 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 amazing so so now what when we see that this mercy seat initially becomes this shadow right of the throne of god now we pair that with a revelation that god's throne to us is a throne of grace where we also find mercy grace is known as unmerited favor but for those of you that have taken bride discipleship courses and have taken our grace course, you have learned that grace is not just unmerited favor. It is divine influence upon the heart. It is the finished work and it is God's very ability. See, out of the mercy of God, there is a desire to help you and that that's paired with grace through the finished work of our high priest. So when we come before the throne of God, we are able to find, as citizens of his kingdom, access to his ability, access to his finished work, access to divine influence upon the heart, and of course, access to unmerited favor. Wow. This is not activity that occurs at your local Walmart. This is transdimensional activity that occurs because of a vital connection established between you and God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. God has set it up because he has a purpose that he wants to unveil to the earth and he wants to use his people to do it. God has mercy for you. God has grace for you. He has it. And as surely as the things you've done do not have more power than the blood of Jesus, I can tell you the mercy of God is not intimidated by the things you've done and the places that you've been. You can have it. You can receive it. You can trust it. Believe in the testimony of the word of God, not the lies that condemn you and persecute you. Because I'll tell you what, God wants a kingdom-minded people. He wants a kingdom-minded people that introduce heaven to earth without fear and shame and insecurity. If you don't understand mercy, you have missed a huge component. You've missed confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Folks, this is a short program. I am actually in Australia, but I hope that this helped you out. Until next time, You've been listening to Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall. God bless and Godspeed. Discovering the Truth with Dan Duvall is the premier radio program designed to center you on the kingdom of God, to equip you with faith in Jesus Christ and to unveil the truth behind the lies. This program has been a production of Bride Ministries. You can find us at www. 
www.bridemovement.com At our website, you can contact us, access resources, and support us with donations. We need partners in order to continue to produce our vision, which is to promote unity in the body of Christ worldwide and assist in the creation and development of sheep nations. Partner with us and be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Until next time, God bless and Godspeed.